Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you to turn again to the first epistle general of John or first John, as we call it. And today we're going to be looking at first John chapter two, verses seven through eleven. First John two verses seven through eleven. Let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. First John 2, beginning of verse 7, wherein the Apostle John writes, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we've just read about light and darkness and sight and blindness, and we acknowledge today that we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need illumination. By thy light, allow us to see light. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, last Lord's Day, we started in 1 John 2. And I suggested three descriptions of the Lord that were given. First, Christ is our advocate. Remember, when we fall into sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what we read in verse 1. Secondly, not only is he our advocate, he is the propitiation for our sins. We suggest we should add that word propitiation to our Christian vocab list. Uh, He's the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Uh, His blood satisfied the wrath of God for sinners. He is our pro, put forward for us, propitiation for us. And then thirdly, I suggest that he is our commander. Commander in that he gives commandments or orders. And we saw that beginning in verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And I suggested also that there's there's actually in that a little subtle affirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because who gives commandments but God? When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, as it's recorded in Exodus 20, to receive the Ten Commandments, God gave him those commandments. 
written on tablets of stone. God is the law giver. He's the one who gives commandments. And now, though, John's applying that to Christ. Christ is the lawgiver. Christ is the giver of commandments, our advocate, the one who is the propitiation for our sins. And we know that we are in him if we keep his commandments. And so Christ speaks with authority. If you read the words of Christ as they're recorded in the scriptures, he doesn't say, in my opinion, or here's my two cents, or something like that. But he speaks the word. Think about it in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you have heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say unto you, if anyone becomes angry with a, a, a cause against his brother, he's in danger of judgment. You've heard it said, but I say to you, he's the lawgiver. He's the commander. And I also suggested that within that teaching there, there was one of the things that we can use as a test for whether or not we are in Christ and it gives us assurance of our salvation. People who aren't Christians don't generally care about trying to obey the commands of Christ. But as people who have had their hearts changed who want to please Christ, want to do what Christ commands, recognizing that's not, again, what saves us, but it's an act of gratitude that we want to obey Christ, our Savior. And again, John puts this forward, particularly going back to verse 3, and hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And I suggested a couple of other verses Last time, John 14, 15 and John 15, 14. I love the way you can flip the chapter and verse on those. Good for memorization. John 14, 15. If ye love me, Christ said, keep my commandments. John 15, 14. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. And I, I, I went back to that. It's, that. it's that identity of Christ as the commander that is going to occupy, I think, the heart of the teaching we'll continue to look at today. Because at the centerpiece of this, John is going to say, the Apostle John is going to say to these early Christians and through the inscripturation of, of the word to us, he's going, to, he's going to say, there's an old commandment I want you to keep, which is a new commandment. We're going to have to try to figure out what that means. I've got an old commandment for you, which is a new commandment. I was reading a, a fellow who has a commentary on 1 John and Robert Candlish, and he said, for though doctrinal Christianity is always old, what he calls experimental Christianity is always new. We talk about Christian doctrine. It's always old doctrine, right? It's, it's, it's from... It's rooted in Christ and the apostles. It's always old, but experimentally, and that's the way the old men used to talk about um, your Christian life now, your walk now. Experimentally or experientially, it's always new. It's an old gospel, but it's always experimentally 
being lived out new. I, I, when we, we, uh, I read Psalm 98, sing a new song unto the Lord. You, you, you would have to be a simpleton to think that means every time we come to church, we should, we should sing a new song, right? A total, totally new song we've never sung before. That's not what's being said. But it's saying every Lord's Day when you come together, there's a new expression of your experience of Christ. And so John similarly is going to say, I have an old commandment to give you, but it's new. It's new. Um, and hopefully, as we walk through this passage, we'll be able to answer that question. What is this old commandment, which is the new commandment? Let's turn now and let's look at our passage, begin to look at it. Look at verse 7. It starts off, brethren. One of the interesting things that John does in this letter is, is again, he repeatedly addresses the, the people to whom he's writing, probably a church. Again, through the inscripturation of God's word, it's, 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 it's a letter to every one of us every, in every generation uh, since the time of Christ is being written to us. And remember, I pointed out, how did, how did he begin the earlier section in verse 1? My little children. And now he uses another title, we might say, for Christians, the people to whom he's writing. And he calls them brethren or brothers. The first Christians called one another brethren or brothers. It's interesting that there were actual brothers Blood brothers among the disciples. We think about men like Peter and Andrew or James and John. And isn't it a wonderful thing when you have a, a physical brother who's also a believer? And you, you have that bond that you have by virtue of being related to one another by blood. Um, but you also have the bond uh, of being spiritually related. Um, and Christians from the very beginning, have thought of themselves as being part of a family, being part of the family of God. We're related not by blood, but by faith in Christ, by the waters of baptism. So we are brothers from another mother, as someone might say. People in sports uh, like to do this. You know, they come off the field. I'm just, I'm just so thankful we won one with my brothers here. Or in military, uh, you know, the, the, think about uh, the brotherhood of, of warriors who are out there serving in the military. And the book that was written, especially about the, the, the guys who served in World War II, Band of Brothers. But there's a, there's a deeper and a greater brotherhood that Christians have with one another. It's deeper than the the community, the fellowship that you might have on a sports team or that you might have even serving together in a foxhole in the military. There is a, a stronger and a deeper bond that we have with those who share a like precious faith with the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this bond. And so it's striking, even just one word, brethren. Brethren, see this, this letter isn't written for outsiders. It's written for insiders. It's written for people who are part of the team, part of the family. You know, there's some things you don't show to outsiders. There's some things that are, that are just seen by the members of the, of the family. I was thinking about how this, this 
is rooted in the ministry of Christ. There was that, that, that occasion recorded in Mark chapter 3 when the mother and the brothers of Christ came to visit him and he was with his disciples and there were many people around him. And of course, his mother and his brothers were part of his earthly family, physical family. But what did he do on that occasion? As it's recorded in Mark 31 and verse 33, he looked around at the disciples and he asked, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked at those disciples and he said, behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and mother. Think also of when Peter told Christ in Matthew 19, verse 27, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have then? And Christ said to, to Peter, Matthew 19, verse 29, And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. You see, you can never lose in the Christian life. There have been people who have come to the faith, and because of that, they've had to break and sever the bonds that they had with their, their, their blood relatives, with their family. But you know what? What the Lord uh, takes away through commitment to him, he gives back. He gives back a hundredfold. I've, I've told the story before about the young woman that I heard her testimony. Her name is Ruth. And when she became a believer, she was from Egypt and she was a Muslim. And her father was so outraged, he put the pistol to her head and was ready to kill her. And uh, she was able to get out of that situation, eventually uh, was in the U.S. And she lost by her commitment to Christ, her relationship with her natural family. But you know, her testimony was that God gave her a spiritual family, that God supplied for her brothers and sisters. And so there's a, there's a bond that Christians have. Brethren, John says. Brethren, the first word in our passage today. I was thinking too about in Matthew 25, the account that Christ gives, we really probably shouldn't call it a parable. It's really a teaching about, about, about the final judgment. And he says in the, in the last day, there's going to be the king who brings all nations before him and separates them in the way a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And remember, he says to the sheep, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I, I was sick and imprisoned and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they, they, they say, when did, when did we do all those things for you? And he answered them, Matthew 25, verse 40, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. We are brothers and sisters because Christ is our elder brother. We're joint heirs with him. And how we treat the brethren is how we treat Christ. Our interactions with the brethren is our interactions with Christ. 
John will come back to this title, by the way. If you look over in chapter 3, verse 13. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. And also verse 14. I'm looking forward to this when we get to it. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. It's going to be another test of assurance, like obeying Christ's commandments. One of the ways we know we are Christians is if we love the brethren. It's a test of assurance. Look at verse 16 of John 3. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so, uh, again, it's just one word, isn't it? But there's a lot in it. There's a lot in that one word. It's loaded with meaning. It's full of meaning. Let's continue, though. Look at verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. I write no new commandment unto you. Here he's talking about writing. Uh, He had had previously said it back in verse 1. Uh, These things I write unto you. And this is an argument that perhaps it is right to call this an epistle uh, rather than a sermon. He seems to have been to have sat down and to have written this specifically so these people would hear this. And the spirit was there guiding him. And uh, what does he say again? Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment. And this is the place that I alluded to earlier where he's going to talk about giving them something old that is also something new. He says here of this old commandment, it's an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. And what is he referring to there? Is he talking about you've had this from the beginning of the world, from, the, from day one of creation? I think more likely... He's not talking about you've had this commandment from day one of creation, but I think he's saying you've had this from the beginning of your discipleship in Christ. You've had this from the beginning because it's rooted in the historical ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might recall how the book of 1 John begins in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. I saw Christ, I heard Christ, I handled Christ, and now he's saying, I want to give you an old commandment, which is from the beginning, I think, from the ministry of Christ. I want to bring something up that was old, that transpired in the teaching and the ministry of Christ. He continues in the the second half of verse 7, Uh, to sort of repeat this. The old commandment is the word, and here it's the word logos, which ye have heard from the beginning. And this has a very Jewish feel to it. It's like reading the Psalms, you know, says something and says it again, emphasizes it, renews it. Um, So this, this, this commandment, this old commandment is the logos, which ye have heard from the beginning. We use the word word there. It could be referring just back to Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Or maybe it means the sum total of all of Christ's teaching during his incarnational ministry. 
With verse 8 now, he's going to transition and say this old commandment rooted in the historical ministry of Christ and in Christ himself is also a new commandment. And so in verse 8, he says, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. The him here, the pronoun refers to Christ. Which thing is true in him, in Christ, and in you, that's a plural, in, among y'all, we would say it here in the South. In other words, this is not some private, esoteric, individualized, privatized teaching, but this is common or corporate or body life teaching. This is for all the brethren. I have a new commandment uh, which is true in him who is the truth and should be true and truly practiced among you in your circles, among one another. Now he said it's an old commandment, but also a new commandment. How can something be both old and new? And I think the answer to that is found in recalling the ministry of Christ. It's old in that it came from Christ's teaching during his first advent, during his incarnational ministry, of which John was an eyewitness and an earwitness. And it's new because it's a commandment or a teaching, as we'll see in just a moment, that Christ called the new commandment. And it's new in that also it is to be lived out experimentally by disciples in their present experience in every generation. It's a new commandment because that's what Christ called it. And it's a new commandment because it's new to us. To be lived out right now in real time in our lives. To understand how this old commandment is the new commandment, we have to turn in our Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. So if you want to turn there, if you have your Bible, we're going to look at part of the context for this old new commandment. In John 13, Christ has arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, it is the time before he will go to the cross. And uh, he gathers in the upper room with his disciples. And, and John describes something uh, here in John chapter 13 that's not described in the other Gospels. Not, it's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in Luke. And John did that quite a bit because I think he probably wrote his gospel last and he knew that people knew Matthew, Mark, and Luke and he didn't feel compelled to repeat everything that they said, but he did add with the Spirit's guidance some things that weren't included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this chapter has one of those things and it is what we call the foot washing. It's when Christ washed the feet of the disciples. And so look at John 13, look at verses 4 and 5. He riseth from supper, the supper in the upper room, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself, verse 5. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, 
and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. I remember preaching on this when we were going through the Gospel of John, and we talked about how this was a prophetic, symbolic action. The Old Testament prophets would often perform symbolic actions, whether it was Isaiah walking around uh, barefoot and naked, uh, whether it was um, Hosea marrying the harlot Gomer, uh, whether it was Ezekiel shaving his hair and beard and to symbolize the exile. And so here, Christ, because he is the prophet, uh, perfect prophet, priest, and king, engages in a symbolic action. And so what does he do? He takes the form of a servant. This is what servants did. He takes the lowliest task. And he washes uh, the feet of his disciples. And then he explains after he does this, the meaning of what he has done. Look at John 13, beginning in verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And so Christ explained that his washing of the feet was, of their feet was an example. It it was a prophetic action foretelling what he was going to do on the cross, but also that he had given them an example of how they were to serve one another as he would serve them upon the cross. There was a lot of talk uh, after the Super Bowl about the little ad, you know, he gets us and all the pictures of the foot washing and so forth. Where that is misguided is it misunderstands that the, the foot washing is not mainly about what any individual Christian generically does for other people, but it's rooted in what Christ has done for his people on the cross. I was telling some of the youth Friday night that I saw on Twitter, someone had had put a a picture of the flood and people being swept up by the waters of the flood and they had put the the words over it, he gets us. (laughs) We, We deserve judgment. But Christ went to the cross for us. That type of ad probably would not be accepted by the network to be shown as a public service announcement. Christ, again, washed the feet of the disciples. Track with me now. They're still in the upper room. He's, He's done this prophetic, symbolic action. And then, after the supper, Judas goes out. Judas goes out. Christ prophetically predicts his horrible betrayal, and he leaves, and then Christ speaks to the disciples who remain, look at verse 33 of John 13. Little children, guess what? It's technia, the same word that the Apostle John used to describe the recipients of the letter in 1 John 
2.1. Little children, yet a little while am I with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. See, preparing the disciples. See, before he goes to the cross, he knows that there's going to be the cross. There's going to be the resurrection. There are going to be the appearances to the disciples. But then he's going to be taken away from them. And we're in that period now where we're waiting, living between the first advent and the second. And then here we get to what's our, what, what's our point that will help us understand what John is talking about. What's the old commandment that's also the new commandment? It's the new commandment that Christ gave to his disciples that night in the upper room after the supper. Look at verse 34. Christ says, a new commandment I give unto you. Again, this is also stressing Christ is the lawgiver. This is taking, he's taking to himself all the prerogatives of God the Father, giving commandments. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. Verse 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. The term that Christ uses here for love is the noun agape. And there's a verb that comes from it. And of course, this became a technical term among the early Christians. Agape, love one another as I have loved you. It it refers to the special concern that believers have for one another because they are part of the same spiritual family. They have a special duty, a special obligation to one another. Now we we know that Christ taught in the great commandment, I think, that Christians, his followers, were to have a general kind of love for all men. You can look at Matthew 22, Mark 12, when he taught the so-called great commandment. He was asked, which is the greatest commandment? And he summarized the whole Ten Commandments in two commandments. He, took, he drew from Deuteronomy 6 and said, the two great commandments are first, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the vertical, love God. And then he threw in a quotation of Leviticus 19.18, the horizontal, love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's the, the great teaching of Christ about a universal care concern that Christians are to have for all men as image bearers. But in this new commandment, Christ refines and crystallizes and specifies a special kind of love that Christian brethren are to have for one another. And this is consistent with what we hear in the teachings of of the other apostles. Think about Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. The apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia and he said this. He said, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. That's the Christian way, isn't it? As we have opportunity, we do good to all men. That's why Christians have been at the forefront of creating schools 
and teaching men's minds and hospitals and tending their bodies and hospices and caring for the dying. Do good as you have opportunity, do good to all men. But listen to the, the rest of what Paul said in Galatians 6:10. Especially unto them who were of the household of faith. Do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the new commandment. Love one another, my disciples, as I have loved you. And you know, sometimes, isn't it, it's a bit easier, isn't it, to just sit at home and say, oh, I love all people. Oh, I just love all people. I have great love in my heart for all people. That's pretty easy, right? But when you actually have to love the people who live under your roof, or you actually have to love the people in your church, my goodness, Have you met some of these people? They're not always easy to love. I know I'm not very easy to love all the time. Can I get a witness? (laughs) (laughs) But it's a special Christian duty that we have to love one another. It was the new commandment given by Christ and it's experimentally new to us every living moment that we are in the faith. Let's go back to 1 John. Now that we've settled that, let's go back. And let's listen as he explains in the second half of verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him, in Christ, and among you, Then he says, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. And what is he referring to here? On one hand, I think he's speaking about the fact that that now that Christ has come, now that the Messiah has come, now that the Lord Jesus Christ has come, now that the word has been made flesh, everything has changed. People don't know it. Not everybody knows it, but everything has changed since Christ has come. Before Christ, all was darkness. Mankind was living in a dark and fallen world. But now Christ has come. Now the age of darkness has passed and is passing away. It's already, but not yet. Christ has come and now the true light shineth. We can go back to the Gospel of John for some insight into this, this time looking in particular at John chapter 1. I read some of this last week, but just to go back to it, look at John 1 verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John the Baptist, of John the Baptist, John the Apostle says, He was not the light, verse 8, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That, referring to Christ, was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Or think about in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that the light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So going back to to John's statement here in 1 John uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth, 
What he's saying is, we're living in a new age because Christ has come. On the other hand, I think John is speaking here of the personal experience of each believer. And contrasting the time before those persons came to know Christ and the time after those persons came to know Christ. For every Christian, there's a before and after, isn't there? There's the time before we knew Christ, when we were living in darkness, and now the true light of Christ has, has shone upon us. And now we're living the new life in Christ, even though there's remaining corruptions within us. We're still living the new life that is in Christ. The Apostle Paul loved this contrast, talking about the change in the Christian life from going from darkness to light. He wrote of it quite often. Two places, Romans 13, he wrote about it. And he also, not only, it, it's like being asleep and waking up. It's like being in darkness and coming into the light. And so in Romans 13, verse 11, he says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Also in 1 Thessalonians 5, Beginning in verse 5, Paul wrote, kind of sounding like John, Ye are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And he says in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 5, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already seen in 1 John, if you look back in chapter 1, John appealing to the same image. Look back at 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. We might say that for someone who claims to be a Christian, walking in darkness means living as though Christ had not come into the world. Walking in darkness means living as though you have not been converted or changed by Christ. And John is going to apply this, especially to how we treat Christian brothers and sisters. He begins with a negative example in verse 9. And he'll talk about what we should not do. And he stresses especially hypocrisy. Saying you believe one thing and then living as though you don't actually hold to the thing you claim to believe. So look at verse 9. He that saith he is in the light... And hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. And again, when you see the term brother, it's not, it's, it's not general term for all humanity. It's Christian brother. 
He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. You might say, well, hate, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Are you telling me that among the Christians that, to whom John was writing, that some of them hated each other? Can't imagine that happening among Christians. In a church? Can you? Well, sadly, if you're around the church, churches long enough, you may experience this. And this church had been through a lot. Remember, we talked about this in the opening message. This church had been through a schism. They'd been through conflict. Look, look, look at chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. And they had had conflict over doctrine. There had been false teachers, false brethren who had said that Christ had not come in the flesh. Look again at 1 John 4, 1 through 3. And there had, been, there, there had to be apparently some strong actions that had to be taken by the leadership of the church. And, and these false teachers had to, had to depart. But anybody who's been around a church long enough knows that even if you make, take actions to purify the church, what does it do? It upsets the body. And people are sad to people, see people leave, for example. And it can cause hurt. And it can cause... Anger, it can, it can cause hard words. It can cause even something bordering on hatred. But John is saying, hey, remember that old new commandment? Love one another as Christ has loved you. And if you say you're in the light and you hate your brother, are you showing that you're actually in the darkness? You're living as though Christ hasn't come and as though you haven't been converted? He continues in verse 10. He says, this is the positive now. He's talked negatively about the person who says he's in the light that hates his brother. Now positively, verse 10. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Now again, he speaks positively. He that loveth his brother, meaning his Christian brother, his fellow believer, abideth in the light. That, that term that's translated here as abide, abideth in the light, that's one of John's favorite terms. And you'll see it all throughout his writings. And it's one of John's favorite terms because it was one of Christ's favorite terms. And Christ used the language of abiding or remaining in him quite frequently during his public ministry, his earthly ministry, incarnational ministry. You might remember, for example, in John 15, the teaching where Christ declared himself to be the true vine. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And in John 15, verses 4 and following, he said, Abide in me. It's the same word in Greek that's used here. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me or apart from me, ye can do nothing. 
Verse 7 of John 15, he said, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. So John uses the words of Christ. He that, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light. The Christian who loves his Christian brothers and sisters is showing he's connected to the true vine, Christ. He's, he's rightly connected and being fed and nourished by the, by the true vine who is Christ. The successful Christian life is most often not one that is filled with dramatic highs rising from terrible, drastic lows. You know what the normal Christian life is like? It's the simple and ordinary practice of remaining or abiding in Christ. The pioneer missionary to India, William Carey, was famous for saying the following. He said, If anyone give me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. And boy, missionaries really need that. Don't they, Jeff Clark? They need to know how to plod. Carrie went to India. There are no believers there. He ministered for, I think, more than seven years before he saw a convert. But he said, I can plod. I can plod. You know what? It's not just that missionaries and ministers need that. Ordinary Christians, we all need that. That's what abiding in the light is. It's not that I'm seeking to have the highest heights after I've risen from the lowest depths, but I'm just doing the ordinary things every day. Sometimes you feel that way as a parent, don't you? Or just maintain your household. If, if I could just keep plotting... If I could just keep going, if I could just remain in Christ, I can plod, I can remain, I can abide in Christ. And here, John is applying that with the Spirit's guidance to, to the way one might be long-suffering with a brother. I can love my brother for whom Christ died. I can abide. I can plod. That's the key to success in the Christian life. I might not like a brother, but I can plod along in loving him and not fall into hating him because Christ has come and because Christ is in me. Of such a man, John continues in verse 10, of that person who abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Behind the English word stumbling, here's the Greek word scandalon. Read for our word scandal. It literally means something uh, that you would stumble over. That person who abides in Christ and, and loves his brother rather than hating him does not uh, willingly or intentionally throw any obstacles in the paths of others because of any sub-Christian actions or attitudes. Because he does not want to cause a stumbling of immature Christians or weaker brethren. In verse 11, John goes back to the negative. So he, 
He had the the negative in verse 9, the positive in verse 10. He returns to the negative once more. And sometimes negative teaching is is helpful, right? Every teacher knows that. Not only is it right to encourage, do this, do this, but it's also good to say, don't do that. Don't do that. Parents, you ever done that? Yeah? Here, do this, but don't do that. Or here are the consequences. So there's the negative in verse 11. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth. That's a striking turn of phrase. The man who hates his brother has no spiritual direction. He does not know that he risks being on the road to destruction rather than the road to life. As John continues, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. He does not know which way to go because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And I don't know if this is the the source for the term blind hatred, but he has a blind hatred of his brother, not remembering that the light has come. We're in the new age. And if he's converted, that Christ lives in him. And this is not fitting for someone who's a follower of Christ. Well, friends, we're being exhorted today in this passage. Christ said we are to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Paul said as we have opportunity, we are to do good unto all men, but especially those who are of the household of faith. And Christ said to his disciples that they are to love one another as he loved them. We have a special duty to one another. This is why church is important. Now, we need to be careful about this. I've said we, we, we're not a cult. We don't love bomb people. And we don't say all of this. Somebody comes in and five minutes later, we're your best friend or whatever. But what we do say is if you're a Christian. You will be compelled by the teaching of Scripture to be part of a church. You can't function as a Christian outside of the life of the church. Look at Hebrews 10. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but all the more as you see the day approaching. You can't live as a Christian really outside of the life of the church. You, you, you might stumble along. You might be on life support, but weak and beggarly. But you can't live well the Christian life apart from the church. And, and the Apostle John is reminding us of this special care and concern that we are to have for one another. And again, it doesn't come immediately. It comes over time. It comes through shared experiences. And we, don't, we, we often fall short of it. But it's the ideal that we strive toward. That we would know one another as Christian brothers and sisters. And that we would have a koinonia fellowship that's greater than that of a bunch of guys playing football. Or even men protecting one another with their lives in the foxhole because we're protecting one another's lives for eternity, see? And so we're a different kind of band of brothers. John is taking us to the teachings of Christ. And Christ set an example for us that we should serve one another. It starts in the home in the way Christian husbands and wives treat one another. 
Are you a Christian? Do you have a, a, a spouse who is a Christian? Well, this is, this is the flashpoint, the beginning point of your Christian duty to obey this command of Christ. It's going to be exhibited in how you treat one another. Are you walking in the light or walking in darkness? And it's going to expand out after that to the way that Christian parents interact with all of their children because all their ch- they're their neighbors, but especially how they interact with their believing children who are not just their children by blood, but also their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's going to extend beyond that into the life of the church in the ways we listen to one another, in the ways we speak to one another, in the ways we honor one another, in the ways we care for one another within the household of faith. See, I can't be indifferent to your needs because you're my brethren. You're part of my family. It will govern beyond this meeting house. It will affect the way we treat Christian brethren and our sister congregations within this Commonwealth of Virginia and across the country and throughout the world. It will govern the language we use and the tone of our discourse on social media so that we'll be careful about what we say about any fellow believer any church or any ministry? Do our actions reveal that we walk in the light or that we are walking in darkness? And it will govern us when the Christian brother rubs us the wrong way. Can you plod? Can you abide in the light? It, it will expand and it will affect us when a brother comes to us with a concern or worry about our spiritual state. Will we dismiss it? Will we become indignant, storm away, act passive aggressively? Or will we plod and think this person might be a messenger that Christ has sent me for my good? Will we listen with a mild and calm spirit controlled by Christ's command to love one another as he has loved us? Friends, we have an old new commandment. New experimentally to us to love one another as Christ has loved us. And we can have assurance of our faith that we're really Christians if we show that we are eager to obey his commandments. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks for thy word and for this teaching that is truly today teaching for the insiders, for those of us who are believers, who've been addressed by John as as brothers and sisters in Christ. And help us, O God, to be humbled under thy word and to obey it, Uh, We do confess before thee we have not always lived as we ought and 
And, and undoubtedly, uh, we will, there will be times when we will fall short of your glory in this area as well. But Lord, you've blessed our church with good fellowship and with unity over these years. And we pray that you would continue that. Give us the mind of Christ and help us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen and amen.